So, 2 Timothy, we're here in chapter 2, verse 1, and we're looking at endurance. Go figure, that's the t- part of the title. Let me ask you a question as we get started. Think about this. What's one of the most physically grueling things you've ever had to endure? A lot of you women here are like, I know, it's called childbirth. <laughs> What's one of the most physically grueling things you've had to endure? One of mine took place in the summer of 2008, not 19. Summer of 2008. Some of you didn't get that reference to uh, his song, but that's okay. (laughs) How is your morning, by the way? All right, okay. Anyway, July 2008, I was about to embark on the most grueling hike I've ever been on in my life. But I wasn't alone. My friend Dan, who was the culprit, the inspiration for this audacious hike, was with me. And he had seen another duo do this hike decades before. My friend Dan is a couple decades older than myself. And it's a trans-Sierra hike that took us from the western side to the eastern side, which people do that all the time. There's the Pacific Crest Trail that spans from northern Mexico all the way up to the Rockies in southern Canada. Three-month trek. You've got to time it out right. Much longer than what we did. The catch, the catch was we attempted to do this 63-mile trek in 30 hours straight through. Mm, Yeah, and I was a young man then. I can't imagine doing it now. My hat's off to Dan. I later realized as we went in deeper into the hike, that I had no idea what I'd gotten myself into. Not a clue. We thought 30 hours, pretty quickly we went, well, let's make it 36. (laughs) Suffice it to say, we didn't finish this in 36 hours. From sub-freezing temperatures, to truly a mountain lion that was on the prowl, (laughs) to fatigue-induced hallucinations, I saw boulders breathe. One of the most wild things I've ever seen. It's amazing what happens to you when you're tired. To getting lost in the Sequoia National Forest. And people do it every year. As we're in the heart of the Sequoia National Forest, my friend Dan points over to a mountain ridge and he says, last year, I think he said, there was someone in the Navy, there was a plane that downed here. They got lost, trapped, didn't know how to get out. They didn't make it out. He's telling me this while we're in the heart of the forest. I'm like, thanks for that info, Dan. What did I get myself into? You know, you give your life to Jesus and you start this journey with him. But you don't really know what it's like until you start walking the walk with him. And there are going to be times where we're put into some very trying, challenging times. And right now, the church, not just the bridge, but the church is facing that trial right now. One of them. We've got brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are under incredible duress. But Jesus said, I will build my church. On what? The truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the gates of Hades will not overpower, overcome his church. His church continues to grow and prosper. How? How does the church endure? How do we as believers in Jesus endure in such trying times? How did I endure through this hike? Clearly I made it out alive. I'm in front of you. There are a lot of things that challenged my endurance and really and truly my resolve to finish this hike. Likewise, this race of faith, as Paul puts it, and you've heard Rick say many times, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Following Jesus requires endurance. So that's where we pick up here in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. He writes to his younger brother, who's become like a spiritual son to him. He says to Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I'm not going to get too much into Timothy entrusting this to other faithful shepherds, servants of Jesus' church. I'm going to really focus on what Paul is instructing and exhorting Timothy in and what Timothy's perspective is. He says, therefore, 
Paul says, therefore, you could say because. Paul is referring to what he'd already told Timothy in chapter 1. So if you haven't read that or you're not refreshed on it, I'd encourage you when you go home today, at some point today, read chapter 1. But that's what he's referring back to. And what was it that, Timothy, or that Paul was specifically referring to? We see here in 2 Timothy 1.6, a gift. He's referring to a gift. Therefore, because of, remember this gift, Timothy, that you've been given. And it's a gift, but it's a discharge also. Or I'm sorry, it's a charge. It's an honor, but with it comes a weight of responsibility. We see in 2 Timothy 1.13, he goes on and says, to retain the standard of sound words, which Timothy heard from Paul. These sound words are what Paul calls in Acts 20, 27, the whole counsel of God. Your Bibles might read the whole purpose of God. So then the question is, well, what's the counsel of God? What's the whole purpose of God? This last summer, our students got a little taste of that as we took them through the major covenants of God because all these covenants reveal God's character to us, who he was in the beginning and who he is to now, who he will always be. And it shows us the culmination of his character confirmed in the person of Jesus Christ. The whole counsel of God. We need to remember as Paul wrote this to Timothy, he didn't have the New Testament. He had the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis to Malachi. Timothy spent years, not days, not weeks, not even months. He spent years listening to Paul teach in the synagogues, in open buildings in people's homes, even in squares and coliseums, he heard Paul teach to big and little crowds. He listened to the words, repeated on a regular basis. He followed Paul on his journeys from town to town, city to city, from synagogue to prison, and he learned from Paul's example. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 Paul was a demonstration of what we read here in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Timothy didn't just hear Paul talk about it. He watched him live it out. Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh, which caused him, we know, great suffering. But he says what God's response was to his pleading, Lord, take it away. God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Guys, remember, you, remember what Paul says to Timothy? Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul goes on to say, most gladly, therefore, because of this grace, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. He doesn't depend on his own understanding. And as we know, Paul definitely had the credentials to do so better than anyone, but he didn't. Therefore, verse 10, he says, I am well content with Weakness. He's content with weakness. With insults. I got to tell you, sometimes I'm content with my weakness, but when people start hurling slander at me, insulting me, belittling me, mm, I don't know if I'm always content through that. With distresses, and as we'll see later, Paul knew what he was talking about when he said distresses. With persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. Why all of this? For Christ's sake. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He's not trying to sound profound. It's the truth. But as we see, I believe, in 2 Corinthians 2.14, it might be 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, natural man can only understand the natural things, but a spiritual man can appraise, or woman, can appraise, value, understand, comprehend all things, spiritual and natural Paul was a spiritual man. He lived and depended on the Spirit of God. And it was God's Word taught and demonstrated through Paul's life that Paul learned what the grace of God was and just how, how to be strong in the grace of God. He heard Paul talk it, but he also watched Paul walk it. Now, I don't have a bunch of points today, so you write down whatever the Lord's speaking to your heart. There are things that he's speaking to me in this. But the themes here throughout the scripture is endurance. Man, do we have need of endurance these days or what? Let me ask us a question. Who are your Timothys? 
Who are my Timothys? Who are the Timothys in our life? Now, if you're a young person listening to this, you're like, well, I'm a teen or I'm in my 20s. I don't have anyone that's learning from me. Don't be so sure. My brother, 18 months younger, learned things from me growing up. We have a responsibility to those who are watching our example. They might not listen to our words, but they definitely walk, they watch where our feet go. Who are our Timothys? What are we teaching them? What are we modeling? As our brother Les has said many times, especially for kids, a lot more is caught than taught. Is what you're giving going to give them the strength to endure what's coming? Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he or she should go. Even when they're old, they will not depart from it. What are we training our, our younger generations in? That word training literally means discipline. And I think there's a confusion, I know there's a confusion, between discipline and punishment. Let me make this clear. Discipline is not the same thing as punishment. Okay, punishment, wrath, Punishment is a consequence. It's a sentence. Discipline is not intended to simply punish, bring a judgment on a person. The, the point of discipline is to build someone up. As Paul wrote to Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love. So, Lord, I pray that you would build us up in your love. Training is discipline, not punishment. It can, however, be difficult. The army, a branch I, I got to serve briefly in, calls these people who train others, train civilians to soldiers, calls them drill sergeants. We have these funny or scary images in our head of this person in BDUs with a big, huge, smoky hat staring down at us. But if you've gone through boot in any branch, you know that in time, as the civilian transforms to the soldier, they go from being this hard disciplinarian to a partner. Marines, the DIs, drill instructors, man, whew, you don't want to get on their bad side. But as you witness, these drill instructors not only teach and instruct their recruits how to be Marines, they do it with them. They can do what they're telling others to do, and they can do it better so that they have an example to show those coming behind them. Training is discipline. Paul is training Timothy in discipline. Sometimes it's difficult. All you who've been to boot camp know that. You're not going to get trained for war, you know, riding on coattails. You got to pony up. You got to learn. And there's some hard things, right? You go to the gym. You don't go to the gym to look good. Some people do. You're supposed to go to the gym to strengthen yourself. And that comes by enduring, putting yourself through the trials, putting yourself, subjecting yourself to the pressures. You've heard the saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Marines have a saying, weakness is leaving the body. I got a lot of weakness left, I think. <laughs> Second Timothy 3, he goes on and tells Tim, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Think about that right there. What are the affairs of our everyday lives right now? So many things that would distract us and entangle us, that would take us off track from seeing Jesus and following him, doing what he's called us to do. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. Do you see what Jesus is doing in this world? I don't have this in my notes, but I had a pretty convicting uh, experience about a week or two ago. I made the mistake of putting something on Facebook that had a political bent to it. Now, I know none of you can relate. That's just <laughs> my cross to bear. But I got called out. And although I don't agree with the perspective of said individuals, the Lord used them to convict me, Jake, people are going to turn me off or turn me on based on how you represent me. And we just heard Pastor Rick teach not too long ago, do not bear the name of God in vain. Let's not get entangled in the affairs of this world. Let's keep it about Jesus. I'm not saying you back down. You don't shrink back from the truth. But it needs to rest on the reputation of Jesus, not a person. Anyone, I should say not anyone else. 
just him. So civilians don't become soldiers by listening to just to instruction. There's a degree of suffering involved, as he says here in verse 3, suffer hardship with me. It's, it's part of the territory. It comes with it. When you accept the call of Christ, there's great confidence, relief, joy. But with it comes a duty. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weak and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. He doesn't say, you'll have no yoke and you got no burden. He says, they're easy and they're light. How? We endure it with him. And I'm already getting ahead of myself here, but how does one endure? How do you endure a half marathon? By doing it. <laughs> There's no amount of instruction or teaching. You can hear a good word on it. Someone can really articulate it well, give you charts and graphs. But at the end of the day, the rubber's got to meet the road. How do I learn to endure? By doing it. You endure it. You go through it. There's a degree of suffering involved. But, as I've said already, the drill instructors, the drill sergeants do it with you. Paul did it with Timothy. He invited Timothy to experience it with him, and Paul exemplified what it looked like. He said in 2 Timothy 4, 5, also regarding endurance, but be sober, you be sober in all things, enduring hardship. Drunks don't endure. Devoted disciples to Jesus can endure whatever comes. Many in the church have become comatose with consumerism, entangled in entertainment instead of serving Jesus. We were enlisted to endure for the sake of Christ. Are we enduring? What in your life right now are you entangled with? As Les has said many times, I'm first consumer. There are a lot of things. Just in the last month that the Lord's gone, is this fruitful, Jake? Is the, it, now, I, let me make something clear. Jesus also isn't a taskmaster. you got to work for the gospel. Drive, strive, come on, harder. That's not Jesus. He says, enter my rest. Come to me and I'll give you rest. But as we see, Jesus was a man who got up before the sun got up. And he was long into ministry, long after the sun had gone down. How did he operate in rest? How did he endure so much? But going back to what we get entangled to, Jeremiah 2.23, the prophet says to Judah, how can you say, I'm not defiled, I've not gone after the balls, or literally other gods? He says, look at your way in the valley. Know what you've done. There is such a desire to see spiritual revival in this country, and I want it too. But as you see time and time again, repentance precedes revival. He was calling his people to repent. He goes on and paints a picture. You're a swift young camel entangling her ways. And you can go check it out if you want. Young camels, in this case, young female camels, pretty gangly. Think of a teenager, actually prepubescent teenager. Not a whole lot of coordination. They're very highly distracted. How do I know? Because I've served 10 years with them. <laughs> <laughs> Highly distracted, entangled in everything, on every whim. He goes on and paints a very graphic picture here in Jeremiah 2.24. A wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her time of heat. There's no control. Driven by every fleeting desire. And what I'm talking about here with entanglement is mixture. If you were here Wednesday night or you've seen it, because it's posted now online, Pastor Hadian talked about what's called the interfaith movement on Wednesday night. Are we entangled in and are we distracted by this world? Because failure to remain true in God's word will lead to our falling and the failings of others who follow us, watch us, listen to us, live with us. This is why Paul starts out, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus because of the standard of sound words which you've heard, because of the gift that God's given you. Kindle it. Don't bring it back to life. He says, kindle afresh. It means to stoke. Keep that fire burning and grow that fire. One thing 
that I appreciated that Hadian said throughout his Wednesday night service was the scriptures, the scriptures. You can look at mainline denominations, evangelicalism, every great name, denomination, mainline out there has corruption in it. And it comes back to the church, the local church, this fellowship. Pastors, brothers and sisters, are we individually going to stay true to God's word? Not the precepts of man, not church traditions, but God's word. I understand this is how you feel, this is what you think, but what does he say? And a lot of us are being challenged because we see things in the world going on in the church that we don't understand. And it causes us consternation, angst, confusion. Wait, what is the truth? Go back to his word. What does he say? Verse 5. He also gives us another picture here. He goes from soldier to athlete. If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Is that not appropriate for today's day and age? If you watch the Olympics, you know what I'm talking about. Athletes who compromise the rules of competition are disqualified. Corruption compromises competition. It becomes unfruitful, a waste. There's so many people this year who either tuned in and tuned out or haven't even watched the Olympics, partly because there are other things that have our attention, partly because there's a lot of corruption going on in the Olympic Games. It steals the joy. What's the point? What's the point when a guy can identify as a woman and compete with women in weightlifting? Now, I say that, if you all know Maria Daly, some strong ladies out there. She out deadlift me every day of the week and twice on Sunday. But you get my point. 1 Corinthians 9.24, Don't you know those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Verse 26, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body. That word discipline can be translated bruised. There are bruises. I remember doing football practice. You get bruises. You get knocks. People who do kickboxing, they'll kick something over and over and over, and it actually calcifies and creates a denser bone in their shin. They discipline it. There, there is discomfort, even some pain, but it's not to break. It's to build up. He goes on in verse 27, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Let me ask you, how many, just within your lifetime, icons of the church, of the faith, have fallen because of their own compromise, because of their own hypocrisy? They teach a good word, but then they live something contrary. And that's honestly one thing that makes me, and I'm not being dramatic here, sometimes when I think about it, it makes me tremble. Lord's going to hold me accountable for the things I share up here. Personally accountable. Are you doing this, Jake? Rosie M. Vivas, or Vivas, was a fraudster who was declared the winner in the female category for the 84th Boston Marathon in 1980. Some of you know this story. Only to have her title stripped eight days after the race when it was discovered that she had not run the entire course. Listen to this. To compromise the Christ of Scripture is to fail the race of faith. Many are quitting this race of faith. Others disqualified by hypocrisy. While more and more we see in this day and age are simply trying to change the rules altogether to fit what seems right to them. We gotta know God's word, and we gotta share it with others. Now, right now, it might come off a little strong. There's a strong exhortation here. This is, I think, one reason why Les and I commiserate so well. As he would say, I want you to get this. But I wanna share something that I was, <laughs> came to me yesterday morning talking with my wife, something very insightful. Man. I'm so thankful for my wife and the wisdom he gives her because as we were talking about this, simply doing things out of duty will not endure. 
You can't just muster up the strength and just, you know, bear a grin and force yourself to keep on digging just to do it. Is there joy? Jesus didn't go to the cross acting like a martyr, right? He didn't go to the cross going, well, I got to do this for the Father, and I do it because I love you, and oh, this is heavy and hard. He knows and felt the weight of the world's sin, but he did it for the joy. But as I will share with you this morning, he, didn't, he did it for the joy to come, but he wasn't bearing and grinning at the whole way leading up to it either. Remember, he's the Prince of Peace. Doing this in life, I'm a dutiful soldier for Christ, doesn't sound very peaceful. Doesn't, doesn't feel very good. And it's not, honestly, for a lot of us, it's not going to go, ooh, I want to follow Jesus. Like, no thanks. If I want to live a life of drudgery and fear and duty, I'll just go join the Taliban. They, they got that thing worked out. They know what it's like to do it for the cause, and no matter what it takes. What, think about this. In your life, hard things that you've gone through. Have there been difficult, trying, challenging times in your life where what kept you persevering was because of the joy in the midst of the situation? Yes, there were hard things, but there was joy in what you were doing in the moment as well. Not happiness, not a fleeting emotion of euphoria, but joy, substantive joy. Many are reinterpreting Scripture so that they can run a race that they want. They're reinterpreting Scripture, but it won't change God's truth. But it does hurt the one who does. Many in the church are, maybe you haven't heard this before, but deconstructing their faith. Deconstructionism. We, see, we actually have heard that in the field of history for a long time. Reconstructing faith. We're going to go in, or I'm sorry, history. We're going to go back in and you know what? There are flaws in the way the history record was written before. We're going to reconstruct this. We're going to reinterpret this. There's a deconstruction of faith happening among folks in the church where they make Jesus in their own image instead of conforming to his image revealed in Scripture. Romans 8, 29. Why, though? Why are so many people doing this? Well, I believe a lot of them are disillusioned. They're worn out. They're fed up. Because their faith wasn't in who Jesus is and what he says. Their faith was in what some would call an institution or a denomination or a church tradition. That will only last so long. Churches are closing their doors because they're not remaining true to the Word of God. Lampstands are being taken out. Lights are growing dim and flickering out. we got to remain true to God's Word, and not in a religiosity. Many are deconstructing their faith because Jesus also requires us to deny ourselves. Man, that's just, that's not going to fly in America. Got to follow your heart. Do you. Make yourself happy. That's the theology of this world and this country's culture. But Jesus says in Matthew 10, 38, if we're going to follow him, we have to pick up our cross. Oh, this sounds like such heavy drudgery. Hang on a second. How do we endure? Paul charged Timothy earlier to stay true to sound teaching. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11, he describes what this looks like. How to stay true to true doctrine, true teaching. See, drill sergeants and drill instructors, they drill on a repeat basis what it means to be a warrior, soldier, marine, sailor, air crewman, whatever they're calling it these days. You have to hear it on a repeat basis. It becomes part of their identity. But a lot of people are denying. They, they've lost sight of what it means to be a disciple of Christ because they, they, never, they never get to know the Christ from his inspired word. I know what I'm teaching this morning is a little simple, but if it was so simple, why are so many people leaving the faith? 
Jesus confronted a group of people who knew God's word better than anyone. You already know who I'm thinking about. The scribes and the Pharisees. Man, they had it memorized. But Jesus said in Matthew 15, 7, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And I don't know if I have it in my notes here, but I believe it's, yeah, further in Matthew 15, the Pharisees had all kinds of traditions, basically interpretations of the scripture. You can go to seminaries for that these days. Now, my brothers in seminary, I'm not begrudging folks who do seminary, but what's happening now over decades is we're putting faith in theologians and their interpretations of the word rather than in God and his word directly from his mouth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this is why a lot of people are burning out, because they're trying to sustain themselves spiritually on either counterfeits or someone else's faith from the word. We have to own personally God's word. We've got to stay true to the sound doctrine, not because Pastor Rick teaches it, or anyone else up here teaches it, but because we know Jesus, we believe in him, we take his word on a daily basis and consume it, and it transforms us. We live it out. These guys were hypocrites. They took traditions, like I was sharing with the students, I think, this last week, the Pharisees, I can't remember the name of the tradition, you probably will, but the Pharisees had this thing where as long as it was devoted to God, you know, they weren't subject to honor their parents with it. Their parents were in need, and they would say, sorry, mom and dad, I'd give this money to you, but it's devoted to the Lord. They just slap a label on it. You know what they do with that, though? Then they take it and invest it. This is for the Lord. And they used that tradition to satisfy their own pleasures. Lovers of self, lovers of money. That's an indication, a sign of the end times. That's going to be a teaching a few weeks down the road here. These were hypocrites. They knew the word. They were very religious and acted very dutifully, but it wasn't in their hearts. Their hearts were far away. More and more church leaders are teaching marriage isn't just between a man and woman in monogamy. Men and women within the church are negating the roles they have in their families and within the body of Christ because, and I hear this, I just heard this this last week, many say what Jesus and Paul taught were relative to their culture. It's culturally relative. God's word changes based on culture. Is that what God's word actually says, though? Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near with me, near with their words, and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Give you an example of someone who's been deconstructing their faith for apparently many, many years. Kevin Max of a band called DC Talk. I'm not dropping his name to slander him. Honestly, every time I think of him and hear his name, I'm burdened. Because I believe this is a guy who's been burned out and hurt and not led in God's word. I think he's got a lot of skewed things taught to him that haven't been from the word. That being said... Kevin Max of DC Talk and other contemporary Christian icons have turned aside from the faith to create their own style of faith. Parents, grandparents, I would encourage you to be aware of the music that your grandkids and your kids are listening to. Just because it's on the Christian radio, don't make it Christian. We need to remember that. Does it align with God's word? Why? Why are they creating their own style of faith? Because their faith, as I've said already, was never in Scripture, but in church traditions and precepts. We have to return to God's Word. You know, that's interesting. This just dawns on me. What's going to, what is it going to take for revival? There needs to be repentance. What did God say? Draw near to me. I've given you my word. And we know that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, return to him. If we return to his word, there'll be repentance. We see in the book of Nehemiah, the people, I think it's the first generation of exiles who've returned from Babylon to their city. And they ask Ezra, the priest, to read God's word. 
And when we say God's Word, we're talking the Pentateuch. And every man and woman stood there as he read through the first five books. And then it rained. Day and night, they listened. And what was their response in the end? They broke down crying because they realized we have so fallen short and drifted so far away from who he is and who he made us to be as a people. But there's good news. There is repentance. We saw a revival. We're in a time right now in this country where it's, there are a lot of hard, challenging things. But remember, there was a generation that came out of Jerusalem and Judea who entered into Babylon and stayed true to God's word. Some of those names would be Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were presently living under a revival under the King Josiah. God always keeps a remnant. Don't think you're alone. We must return to God's word, not man's interpretation of it. 2 Timothy 2, 6. Would you continue reading with me? He goes on from soldier to athlete, and then he says, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So soldiers are heroes. Athletes are icons. But what about farmers? And i got to be honest, when I got to the farming part, I'm like, that seems a little off. Soldiers, athletes, farmers? Ba-dum, ba-dum, dum, dum, dum. <laughs> Farming is a consistent work of diligence. Day in, day out. Parents, we have a lot in common with it. I'm looking at a lot of folks who are veterans in parenting. We have a lot in common with farmers. There's no glory, little to no glory. Much of it's unseen by others, but if it's done right and provided with the right conditions, it yields a great harvest that multiplies with maturity. There's a reward. There's, there may not be glory, but there is a huge reward. Now, as I wrote that, I realized, you know, I might be talking to some parents who struggle with that because they, you, you might have children growing up and you're like, they're not with the Lord. I heard Les say this to a parent, a, a veteran parent. Did you sow good seed? Yeah, then don't dig it up. And remember, this gives me comfort. If God is the perfect parent and his kids, Adam and Eve, rebelled, guys, we'd be faithful to what God's given us. Some water, some plant, God gives the increase, which is why prayer is vital. And he's convicting me of that, not judging me, he's convicting me, Jacob, your kids hear God's word all the time. They definitely hear it from you when you go home because you talk a lot about my word. And that's great, Jake. How much time do you spend talking with me, asking for me to cover them, to inspire them, to work in their hearts? I can water, I can plant, but he gives the increase. So to break this down, looking at farmers and parenting, this comes by planting the seed the gospel, God's word, in good soil. In other words, a heart prepared to receive God's word. What are we doing to tend to the soil of other hearts that we're planting God's gospel in or watering the gospel with? And then the seed must be planted with soil that runs deep. Their faith isn't based on fleeting feelings that wither under pressure. And there's a lot of that. Why are people falling away from the faith? Because their faith was based more on an emotion and an experience that's not rooted by God's word. But then it also needs to be constantly cleansed of worthless weeds. And we know, based on Jesus' description in Matthew 13, what these weeds are. Their values in the wealth and the pleasures of this world. Man, the God of this age is doing everything he can to entice our young people with pleasures with empty promises of success. So in the end, if we do these things, it will grow to full maturity and it will bear good fruit, which means spiritually mature men and women who can in turn disciple others in following Jesus also. I would encourage you to check out Matthew 13, 1 through 23. I'm going to give you a number of scriptures here. Write them down. I'm just going to say go home and read them. Process them with the Lord through prayer. I've only got so much time. 
I do know that. I'm aware. I'm on a clock. What time is it? Okay. Where there is fruit, there is a root. Parents, are we farming our children's hearts to be fodder in the spiritual war among us? Or are we leaving the soil of their hearts to be tended by the God of this age? If you're a parent listening to this and you go, I'm going to live out my faith, but I'm going to let my kids decide what they're going to do. Well, they do have to make a decision, but we have a responsibility and a charge and honestly, a joy and labor in guiding and directing them. What are we doing? Not forcing them, not chastising them endlessly, not giving them rules. You need to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to go to church. Our kids are going, why though? What is the point of it? See, the Jewish people saw the Pharisees do all that. But when Jesus showed up, they said, he, the Pharisees even said, he's different. He teaches like someone with authority. And he didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. Do they see it modeled in our lives? Three things for us as parents, parental farmers. We must teach our children to abide in his word by modeling it ourselves. We can't read the Bible in the, in the privacy of our closet. They need to see us doing it. Two, we must ensure that they have the right conditions to grow. Fellowship in his church. Bathed in prayer. Motivated to pray. Here for communion. Les led us into communion. We sat down and I said, Ezra, would you pray over the bread? Jesus' body. Encourage our kids to pray. And, and this is something that the Lord has uh, convicted me of regarding our students. Can you identify the giftings and the special talents and skills that God's put on these kids' lives so that you can fan that to a flame? Are we stoking, are we encouraging their spiritual gifts? And thirdly, we've got to feed and water them daily in God's word and his spirit of truth. They are inextricably bound, both and, not either or. And I say this because I come from a much more conservative background, not just politically, but spiritually, church tradition-wise. Too much fertilizer will burn out a plant. I'll confess to you, I think that's part one of the things that I struggle with, I want to just give and give and give. Well, someone can only take so much. Are we pouring on them demands and lists of things that they need to do to be a good Christian? Or are we inviting them to be a part of it with us? Do they get to see the joy of God's word in our lives? Look at verse 8 with me, would you? goes on and says, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which, because of this, I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Let's stop. How did Paul preach the gospel when the New Testament wasn't written? He says to the church in Galatia, chapter 1, verse 6, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. What gospel was this? The church had the Hebrew scriptures, and Paul and others explain how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenants. Jesus is the confirmation. The gospel is in the Old Testament. Try going to Israel and preaching the gospel to an observant Jew. They don't want to hear you talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Tell me about Isaiah. Do you know anything about the scriptures? Who is Jesus revealed and fulfilled through the Old Testament? The gospel of God began in Genesis, in the beginning. It didn't start with Matthew. Matthew on through the New Testament is the fulfillment. Do our kids know the full breadth of God's word? To know him in his entirety. Our children need to know all of God's word. This world is getting more hostile to God's word. Paul's exhortation to Timothy is to retain the sound doctrine. Embed yourself, absorb yourself in these things. Because as we'll see next Sunday, verses 14 through 26, what happens when we depart from faithfulness to his word? You can read that on your own time in advance. Many of us, and I speak as a parent, have struggled with fear over the world our children are growing up in. 
Let me ask you, going back to these examples that Paul's given us and the applications we've made, do you think drill sergeants discipline with dread? Oh, man, you guys are in for it. Oh, man. No, they've got to be motivated. Motivation doesn't come by fear and dread. They've got to have confidence. We're going to take this hill. You're going to do it with me. Do coaches encourage cowardice? No. And farmers don't plow in fear. We cannot live in fear. The love of Christ compels and control us, controls us. Perfect love drives out the fear. He's given us a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Discipline. Are we showing, teaching, modeling that to our young people? Hebrews 10, 35 through 36 tells us we have need of endurance. I am not an endurance athlete. Give me a heavy weight to lift, but man, endurance? Endurance is so vital to this faith. It's absolutely vital. And it's not just for us. It's for the sake of our children's confidence in Christ. See, we're modeling something. Are we giving them something that will fill them, strengthen them with endurance to carry on? At some point, we're going to have to pass the baton. Will they be ready to carry that on, to run the next leg of the race? Our children have been born for such a time as this. Parents, myself included, we go, oh, Lord, I want to, I'm done having kids. I don't want to raise any more kids in this. Think if Daniel's parents had stopped. He never came into the world because of the things that they'd experienced before Josiah the king. Oh, man, I don't want to bring my kids into this world. Well, now that sounds like fear and dread. Instead, follow God by faith, walk by the faith that he inspires us with from his word, practically working, empowered by his spirit in us. We're digesting his word. And you know what? When you have a child, you get an, ex you get an opportunity to train someone up to be an ambassador of Christ. There's great joy. Drill sergeants are like, oh, don't join. There's a war probably coming, and you don't want to be involved in that. They're like, come on. Who wants to do this with me? Who's in this fight? And the great thing is, we don't fight for a lost cause because our king isn't like the authorities of this world. He doesn't disappoint, and he leads us into a spiritual battle. There is victory in Jesus. Do we live with that conviction of faith, though, that our kids can go, man, there is joy in my dad. I've watched him go through hard things, but he's got joy. And they realize that's because of Jesus. Well, I want that. I want that confidence. John 16, Jesus promised these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. It's a promise. But take courage, I've overcome the world. Do people see Christ's courage in our hearts, alive in our lives? Suffering is part of the Christian call, but our freedom and our hope is in God's word to us, which is why we have to remain true to it. Isaiah 48 tells us, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Are we anchored to God's word? Does his word anchor us? Our children need to know, and they need to understand and witness the power of God's gospel in our lives. 2 Timothy 2.10, he says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who were chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. I keep talking about endurance. Do we have an enduring faith to pass on. Matthew 10, 8, Jesus, having had time to instruct and demonstrate God's word in his life with his followers, his disciples, he says, as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons in the authority of his name. And then he says this, freely you received, freely give. Maybe part of the problem is we haven't done our part to receive from him so that we have something to give. Or maybe you're, running, you're like, I've been given, but I'm feeling dry. Then fill up on him. Return to your first love. 
2 Corinthians 11. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read this passage. This is a demonstration of what it looks like to endure. Paul modeled this to Timothy. Timothy saw it up close. 2 Corinthians 11.23, he says. 1 Corinthians 11.23. How dare me. <laughs> this is why we post the scriptures, so that you don't trust Jake. You trust in God's word. 1 Corinthians 11, 23. I think I got this messed up. I'm going to paraphrase this. Someone find the scripture. Here's a challenge. Remember when Paul says this? I've been beaten without count, without number. I've been shipwrecked. I've been abandoned. I've suffered in freezing, in hot, in plenty, in little. And he, he says, it's all temporary light affliction. This man knew what it looked like to endure the cross of Jesus for the sake of the gospel of God's glory, for his name and for our good. He was a model of what it looked like to endure, and Timothy saw it. What will we sacrifice in suffering for the gospel of Jesus? What else will we forsake so we don't forsake coming together as his church. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Look at 2 Timothy 2, 11 with me. We're going to end with these last three verses. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This section reads like a song or a poem because it is. It appears this was a hymn that Paul learned. Well, where did he learn this hymn? in fellowship, in fellowship with the early church. Paul is quoting worship, and it's the word of God. I'm going to turn to Acts 16. We actually sing a song. Our worship team led us in a song that represents what I'm about to read in Acts 16. Verse 22. How do we endure Paul went through the ringer, guys. We have reason to believe he was pretty much blind by the end of his life. Flogged, beaten, left for dead. Go read just all the things he went through. But in verse 22, with his co-labor of Christ, Silas, after preaching the gospel, and there was a lot of controversy to it, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they'd struck them with many blows, as in without count, then they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And we know that the prison they were put in was the deepest, darkest dungeon. It was at the center in shackles and stockades. Very painful, along with rats and all kinds of miserable conditions. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise. What do you do to get into the Spirit? What do, you, what do you practically do in your life when you're worn out, when you're tired? Honestly, guys, most of the time when I'm feeling beat down, I'm feeling discouraged, I don't open up a book of the Bible and start to, to study it out. I start praying. I cry out to my Heavenly Father. I'll put on music that's inspired by His Word, good Word-inspired worship, and I dwell on Him. What do these guys do? They start to sing praises to God. All the prisoners hear it. And what happens? The prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. The same guy who just threw him in is now begging them. 
after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Notice what got him to this point? The boldness and the joy of Paul and Silas in their Jesus. Prayers and hymns. And they didn't say it quietly. And they didn't do it to tick anyone off. They did it because of their love for him. And their joy was so powerful. We read what happens here when they sing out. They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And they took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, immediately was baptized, and all his household. And he brought them into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. What does Psalm 23 tell us? It's not up there, but I'm quoting the reference. He leads me beside still waters. He throws a banquet in the midst of my enemies. What does God do here? Now when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul. We could go on. I'm not going to continue that story. Paul and Silas weren't forcing themselves to feel better. They believed their faith in Jesus. Their joy was real. And their joy drowned out the sorrows and the wails and the mourning of that deepest, darkest dungeon in their life. Their joy expressed to Jesus invited the real power of God to do things that couldn't be done by human hands or agents. The joy was demonstrated in reality and practically in dark times. The joy of their faith in Jesus together was so overwhelming, the prison doors literally broke open free. And the person who was their accuser and persecutor became their brother and a servant. The joy of the Lord is our strength, Nehemiah 8.10. What did the people do when they wailed and mourned after hearing Ezra teach God's word? They repented and he said, don't mourn, eat, feast. You guys, God loves you. We have so much to be thankful for, to celebrate. I would encourage you, tomorrow night, come on out. You're not going to hear Jake teach for an hour, I promise. We're going to celebrate together the goodness of God. We're going to lift our hearts and our voices in joy. And I want all the neighbors here in this area to hear our trumpets blow and know those people are crazy, but they're sure joyful. They got something I want. Galatians 5.22, my wife shared this with me. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. We love, the joy, or we love the love part, and we're always crying for peace, but we need to remember a key ingredient in there is joy. And it's not put there randomly in order. It's consecutive for a reason. Love brings joy. And joy produces peace. And then we see peace Gives us patience to endure suffering. 2 Corinthians 1.6. Joy is vital in enduring. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Not your accumulation of scripture. The joy of the Lord. Psalm 16.11. How do I know what I'm saying to you is true? You will, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Verses 11 through 13 show us, guys, that our joy is found in Jesus, not in our situations, not in what he does for us. When Jesus showed up after the, the crucifixion, he showed himself to his guys. They had joy. First, a little terrified, and then they had joy. And it wasn't because of anything else except their Jesus was there. Their best friend, their mentor, their teacher. He is God. Luke 23, 42. One of the criminals dying with Jesus said, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That man was incredible agony. But he had joy while he died on that cross. Joy takes us beyond what we feel or even what we think. Takes us beyond that. Not in some surreal, esoteric experience, but a real power that is rooted in a real Jesus who's really the sovereign Lord in our lives. The joy the criminal found wasn't in death. The joy was with Jesus in that moment. And then he had something good to look forward to because of who God is to him now. 
Jesus doesn't leave us or forsake us, John 14, 8. Do we have that joy, remembering that? In verse 12, the threat to our joy is the denial of Jesus. If we deny him, we reject his joy. Why? Because in his presence is fullness of joy. Don't give up on Jesus. But verse 11, if we endure with him, we reign with him too. Revelation 24. But what if I stumble? And what if I fall? And what if I make fools of us all? It's ironic I say that because that was a line from Kevin Max's song when he was with DC Talk. What if we stumble in our faithlessness to him? You don't have to keep a brave face all the time for your kids. It's good for them to see you in your weakness because remember Paul said, in our weakness, his strength is made evident. In my weakness, I'm made strong. Show them how Jesus takes you through your weakness. Jesus has everything covered. What happens when I stumble? I will. You and I will fail at times, but we're not saved because of our commitment to Christ, but because of his to us. John 12, I'm sorry, John 21, 12 through 19, we saw two men. One of them denied Jesus, filled with worldly sorrow, and he ended his life. Another one vehemently denied Jesus, and on the third denial, saw Jesus catch his attention while he's being beaten. I cannot imagine what Peter went through. Totally broken and undone. Then what does Jesus do when he comes back from the grave? He restores Peter. He says, it's okay. I know you failed. It's okay. Your faith isn't in your faithfulness to me. Your faith is in my faithfulness to you. Even when you mess up, I will hold you up. Does that not give you joy? He's not looking to chastise and condemn us. He's looking to comfort us and build us up. And he did that with Peter. Peter was one of the apostles, even after what Peter did to Jesus. Mind blown. That's the love of our God. Jesus restored Peter's fellowship and faith. Jesus remained faithful to Peter because Jesus, not us, Jesus doesn't break his promises. He keeps his covenant word to us. So I want to end here. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Whether we endure through this world or collapse under its weight, and there's a lot of it these days, will be based on our dependence on the truth of God's word, the sound teaching. And what is the goal of God's word? Love. Love covers a multitude of sins, and love begets joy, and joy produces peace, and peace bestows patience, a long-suffering Simon Peter got to carry the cross with Jesus. Not Simon Peter, Peter of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene, thank you. He got to carry the cross with Jesus. I don't think he wanted to in the beginning, but I believe by the end, it was an honor. And church tradition has it, Simon of Cyrene came to faith. He knew what it meant to take up his cross, but we don't take up our cross dreading or fearing, we take up our cross because we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, because his word is true, it's living and it's active. Is it living and active in our lives? Lastly, I wanna just ask you to ask yourself this, where you're at right now. Do you have deep and intimate fellowship through life's ups and downs with other disciples of Jesus? We're not having these home groups because it's another program that the church has to do. We see it modeled in Acts 2.42 and verse 46. What happened when persecution came to the church? The church wasn't based on an institution or the great halls of a synagogue or temple. The temple came crumbling down. But the church continued to grow and prosper under persecution. Joy isn't just found at the end. The joy is running this race with Jesus together. Let me ask you a question. Do you have the joy, joy, joy down in your heart? Where? Down in your heart. Where? Down in your heart to stay. And I'm so happy, I'm so happy that Jesus saved me. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word of grace, of power, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control.
I'm sure I'm leaving something out, but your word is true even when I stumble. Lord, we thank you for that joy. And as I pray, if there's anyone here who'd like to come forward and pray with one of us just for the things that the Lord's laid on your heart or maybe for someone else who's on your heart, please come forward and pray. And if you're at home, join in prayer with those who are with you. Pray together over the things his word is putting into our hearts and our minds. Jesus, we thank you. We want to lift up this song to you. And anyone who doesn't have Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Receive his joy for your life because he loves you. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen.